T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From Stonewall to marriage equality, 50 years of pride. I'm Ben Meverack, and my guest is Mark Siegel, journalist, author, gay rights activist, publisher of the Philadelphia Gay News, and in 1969, front and center of the Stonewall Inn uprising in Greenwich Village. Good to see you, Mark. Great to be here in your beautiful studio. My God, you have all this great equipment, all these bright lights, cameras. Yeah, we're a pretty fancy place. (laughs) I want to set the stage by having you read a passage from your book, And Then I Danced. Would you do that for us? Sure. When I was younger, maybe five or six years old, my cousin Norman was 16. His father discovered he was gay gave him a major beating, and threw him out of the house. Cousin Norman uh, was the family member whom nobody mentioned. One day, I was in the backseat of my parents' Studebaker while they were discussing him, and I somehow picked up on the fact that he was a guy who liked guys. A fagula. It was rarely brought up in the family, and this caused me to uh, the dynamic that silence was preferred on this topic. Talk or no talk, I knew that whatever it all meant, I too was a fegula, and I knew I should never speak about it. You knew early on? Yes. There was no question for you. You were more attracted to, I know you you write about looking in magazines and and your friends would look at the uh, girls in their negligees and and you were attracted to In the Sears robot catalog. In the Sears robot catalog. And I would look at the guys in their underwear. And I just knew knew that's something I liked. Um, And I never understood why looking at the girls in their brows and panties did nothing for me. Did you ask your parents about it? Did you say, hey, why am I different? Or did you think of yourself as different? What was was going on? I thought of myself as different because I saw all those guys looking at what they were looking at. I was looking at something different. So uh, those of us who are gay and know it early, we see that we're doing things differently than other people um, and that we don't have a word for it. We just... And the first thing you think of is, why am I different? Does that make me ill? Does that make me um, an outcast? And then eventually you hear something like I heard from your parents talking about the fagel of the family. And you realize, well, that's you. Uh, But it was directed at Norman, but did you have the same... Rejection feeling, feeling of rejection that, well, if they feel that way about Norman, what are they going to, well, how can well, I Well, my parents about? were very loving. Um, I, 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 it's amazing how vividly I remember that conversation. My father was somewhat negative, and my mother was saying, well, after all, it's a child, meaning cousin Norman. She was very sympathetic. Um, and they were very loving to me, and they always told me uh, to be what I really felt I should be. Um, 
and I didn't feel like it was personal. Um, and, but at the same time, I didn't think I could tell them. I thought that I would embarrass them, shame them, or disappoint them. So you knew, and you kept it repressed. Absolutely. Like all gay people. There's not one gay person on this earth um, who realizes they're gay and immediately goes tell their parents. Um, we're uh, oppressed by society so strongly uh, in every way, shape, and form from every institution um, that we don't feel that security. And it's not the parents' fault. Um, there are too many outside forces. Did your friends have a clue? And did they bully you? Did they ostracize you? Did they... I don't think any of my friends uh, knew anything about me until probably high school. Hmm. Um, in high school, and, and that was the last. Uh, and the reason that uh, they did was that I found someone attractive there who I really cared about. Uh, and we came very close to having a relationship, which we did not have. Um, we did have one years later. But <laughs> the conversations when you're a boy growing up, it's all about girls, right? And, and, right, and, 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 and how you react to them, how, if you find them attractive, if you can relate to them, if you could talk to them. Could you and participate with this guy, I could do all of those no. things. And it was the first person in my life I could. But could you participate in the general conversations with your friends when they were teasing the girls and talking about the girls and how pretty and all that? Were you, or A great did you... question, because the answer is no. And I became alienated from my entire class. And that uh, 12th grade year, was the year I hardly ever went to school. I do not know how I got a diploma. Um, I w played hooky more than you could possibly imagine. Um, I left in May to come to New York. You were 18. I, I was 18 years old, didn't know what I was going to do, didn't know where I was going to live, didn't know uh, what I was going to do for a living. Um, came up here with the pretense of going to school, which was a lie. So, we, so you weren't, so, well, maybe both. Were you searching for something, running away for something? What was the appeal, or what was the reason? Well, um... Everybody knew at that time that all the beatniks and crazy people in the world lived in Greenwich Village. So I assumed my people must live there. <laughs> so I was going to, to find my people because none of my people lived in Philadelphia, at least not that I knew of. Right. All right. So you got here? You, I got here. What did you go? What did you do days uh, I stayed at the YMCA on 34th Street. Uh, that's where I lived. And got here about six weeks before Stonewall. And when I got here, one of the first things I tried to do, well, when someone like me come, came to New York at that time, um, you, there wasn't a big sign, gay place, village, Christopher Street. You had to search for it. Um, so I went searching for it. And luckily, the first night, I found Christopher Street. I walked on Christopher Street, saw people who seemed to be like me, you know, guys walking with guys, women walking with women, mostly guys, um, drag queens. Uh, and I realized... You know, this is home. And was I it transformational for you to be in a place where you were no longer on the outside looking in? It felt natural. I know that sounds off the wall. And when I think about it now, um, I don't even understand it. Uh, I blended in immediately. Uh, I tell people uh, today when I'm in a, in a classroom uh, speaking to kids in high school or in college, uh, when you went to hang out when you were a kid, you'd go to the malls. Um, if you were gay and 18, you hung out on Christopher Street. So that was my mall in a sense. Mm. And you'd walk up and down and sit on the steps, uh, which people come out and yell at you, get off the steps! Um, but your friends did that all night long. Uh, I just took a walk down Christopher Street on my way here um, and passed by what used to be the Silver Dollar Restaurant, which is a place we used to hang out when it was cold outside. Um, 
good memories. Uh, I like to believe that was like my uh, uh, graduating class in a sense. Um, but it felt natural because I could finally be myself. When you called home and you talked to your parents, what did, and they asked you, what are you doing? What's, you know, have you made any friends? What were your answers? My answers were, well, I'm working. Um, I told them I was going to, and I remember this clearly, RCA Technical School. I was going to become a TV cameraman. And that was not true. It was not true at all. Um, and so for the first few months, that pretense went on. Um, but eventually I stopped doing that. And I said, well, I'm just working. I decided to take some time away from school. Um, and they didn't ask too many questions. And when I finally called and told them I was gay, the reaction was from my father. Oh, yeah, I know. Here, speak to your mother. And so my assumption now is, and they're no longer here, so I can't ask them, um, was that they knew and they knew I was trying to find myself, which would be today's terms. Uh, my parents were all supportive of me being myself um, and being the best person that I could be. I want to talk to you about that in helping others to come out and, you know, the different types of reactions that parents can have for them. But I also want to dive into Stonewall and, and that period okay. of time. Uh, but before I do that, the, the Mark Siegel of 2019, how is he different from the Mark Siegel of, tw of 1969? Pragmatic, um, thoughtful, Things you a little, more, now, pa a little more patient, a little more, I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, still an aggressive driver. Uh, don't drive with me. Um, trying to come to terms with history. I haven't done that yet. And you I don't know if I'm going to ever. You weren't thinking about that in 1969. No, not at all. You weren't thinking about that you were going to be part of making history. No, you and I'm still shocked by it and don't understand it. It's remarkable how much impact you have had, and we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, beyond the riots. I mean, the riots were sort right. of like, for better or worse, the fuse. But, you know, I, I, we know that these uprisings, if you will, happened at other bars across the country. Compton's, Black Compton. Cat, um, Upstairs Lounge in San Francisco. Right. And yet did not have what happened here. And I know it comes down to a piece of chalk, which apparently made the entire difference. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Very nice of you to say well. that. Yep. No one's ever said that before. You've been described as a man of fearless determination, cheerful tenacity. Uh, was that the result of your DNA? Uh, yes, or was absolutely. That a, it was. Um, so, I had great parents, a great grandmother, an incredible uncle. Um, they made me who I am today. They taught you the value of equality, civil rights, being yourself, perseverance. What, what was it that... All those things. I mean, um, it was a great incubator. Um, now that I look back at it. Uh, so my grandmother uh, survived the pogroms in Russia. Uh, she then came to the United States and as a young woman uh, became a suffragette. Uh, then when I was 13, one day she came storming into my house and said, my mother, I'm taking Mark somewhere. And she took me to my first civil rights uh, demonstration. So I, th I think demonstrating or standing up for your rights is part of my DNA of, of my family. Um, you grew up in it's, a tough neighborhood. You grew up in the... Yeah, I grew up... I was, we were the only Jewish family in the Wilson Park um, housing project. Uh, and we literally, literally lived on the other side of the train tracks. And uh, I had to go to school with people. In those days, if you were Jewish and um, you were Irish or Italian Catholic, uh, we were the people who killed their Christ. So what did it teach you? Uh, to try to have a thick skin. Um... Although I'm ne I don't think I've ever been good at that, to be honest. Um, but I guess to have a thick skin, take it all in, and wait for the perfect time to react to it. 
know, Steve Jobs gave a commencement address at Stanford University many years ago. He talks about connecting the dots, that when you're living it, you have no clue what it's leading you toward. It's only when you look back that you can connect those dots. So you said, you know, living in the housing projects made you tough. Your grandmother taking you to the civil rights demonstration gave you a sense of, I guess, purpose uh, yes. for a greater, a stronger uh, goal. And so when you were outside the Stonewall Inn on that particular night. That's the perfect the, dot to connect it to. Absolutely. Um, you were ready. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I remember saying exactly what I said to myself, and I know these things in your brain you say in an instant, but saying it takes like about two minutes, which is very simply, uh, black people are fighting for their rights, women are fighting for their rights, Latinos are fighting for their rights. Why shouldn't we be fighting for our rights? And I, I said, said to myself at that point, that's what I was going to ded dedicate my life to. 69, Stonewall Inn, owned by the mob. What did you, what did you know about Stonewall Inn when you came? It was, did you know it was the place or a place? Um, when I first got to Christopher Street, I didn't know any place. Um, the two places that I turned out knowing the best were the Silver Dollar Diner um, at the end of Christopher Street, almost the end, um, and the Stonewall, because we would walk between them up and down the street all night long. Um, and they were a hangout. On Christopher Street, you could be yourself, but to a limit. Police would only allow so much. Um, going into Stonewall, uh, you felt free because what could you do there you couldn't do outside. It was a safe place. You could kiss, you could hold, you could dance. So I'm in the bar, the lights go up and down, um, and I just look over to the person next to me and say, what's going on? And they casually or shrugged and said, oh, just a raid. I panicked. Um, uh, the police came in barged in, I should say, um, walked in like they owned the place. Uh, they extorted money from the older guys, the stereotype uh, women and men that were in the bar. They pushed around or just yelled at them. Um, me, they had nothing, no, no need for me. I looked like the kid next door. I didn't have any money. What are they going to do to me? You know, so I was one of the first to be carded, which in hindsight, as you say, it was very lucky because I got to stand outside and watch everything. I had the the, the lovely thing that I was in the bar, then outside almost from the beginning. And you went across the street? Well, I mean, when I, when I first got out of the bar, my point was, okay, let's go across the street and just watch and see what this is all about. Because I really didn't know. I didn't understand it at all. Um, I guess reality in hindsight now is I never would know because you usually don't have a ride after a raid. Um, so uh, as people were being carted and let out... Um, Two things happened. Uh, if you were someone who was established or establishment or your parents um, knew you, you know, you live with your parents, you ran. You weren't going to be anywhere near that bar because, A, you didn't want to get arrested. You, you didn't want to have your picture taken if anybody had a camera, which no one did that night. There, that should be out of here. There are no real pictures of Stonewall that night. Um, we didn't have cell phones. There was no internet. Uh, so the only people who left were street kids like me, people like me who were living at the YMCA, people who were literally on the street, uh, drag queens and stereotypes. We were it. Nobody else stayed at that place. So we uh, started gathering around in a semicircle around the door. Um, and at one point, the, door, the, the only people inside the bar were the staff of the bar and the police. And... Uh, they wanted to leave. So they opened the door and they noticed all of a sudden all these people. Um, and when they opened the door, someone uh, threw something uh, and many other people kept th threw a lot of things and they closed the door. Uh, there's a little factoid which is often ignored, which is um, 
the time clock, we now have a timeline of what happened. And uh, a question's been asked, well, they were in there an hour before they called for reinforcements. Um, why did it take an hour? Uh, I think I have an answer for that. Um, if you were the police in 1969, you had a bunch of queens uh, blocking you in a gay bar and you were afraid to go outside, would you call your brother officers? I think they were embarrassed. All right, so you're out there. They're in there. There is the, the forever, whether it's a myth or a fact, that someone threw a brick that started it, but that's often open to interpretation. I don't recall... So I don't recall anybody ever throwing a brick. So uh, I was at an event speaking about the subject a few about a month ago, and someone said to me, I heard you said there wasn't a brick. I said, not to my memory there wasn't. He's, I said, if you take a look up and down Christian Street, you'll see most of the buildings are older buildings. There's no bricks to be had. And uh, the, the gentleman said, well, there was a building around the corner being built. So I find it, uh, I usually don't, um, fight with people on the myths. There's one myth that I will fight on because it's really insulting. Um, but That's a Judy Garland myth. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I have friends who are there and they have different memories than I do, as they should, because A, it's a riot. Things are moving. People are running around. Some people were there at one point. Other people came at another point. Some people came and went. Um, every one of us have our own individual memories. Well, you were standing there, um, and look, let me just at least clarify the Judy Garland since, since I threw it out there. Uh, it's that it was a result of the death of Judy Garland, and that... Um, the uh, stereotypical uh, um, reply from white heterosexual reporters writing about the evening um, in the Village Voice a week later who weren't there stated uh, that the reason we did it was because that was the day Judy Garland was having her ceremony at Cam Campbell's funeral home. Well, I'm, I was 18 at the time. Um, someone like Judy Garland was nowhere in my mindset. Um, and when we danced in Stonewall, we danced to the Beatles, Supremes, Fifth Dimension. Um, no one liked Judy Garland. I mean, she might have been something from the 40s and the 50s, but not 1960s and 70s. Um, and so I've recently been doing more research on this because it annoys me to death. Um, and I noted, uh, noticed that there were, through the 1960s, which was a, tur um, a very turbulent time in America, there were some 100 riots. It's, it's sort of amazing. Now, they were for all different reasons. Um, could be a racial riot, um, might be a Vietnam uh, against the war riot, but there were, and I guess I shouldn't call them all riots, some were disturbances. Um, but you would uh, call Stonewall a riot. Oh, yes. Not an uprising, parsing well, words, we maybe. could go through the words in it. But of those 100, not one of them is tied to a showbiz character. Why does ours have to be stereotyped like that? So the rock is thrown. You have, you have choices. You're free, right? You're not, they're not detaining you. They just said, go away. You could have, as things got out of control, you could have run away. But you what? You walked back across the street? What well, did you? I stayed there watching. I think um, at that point, although I didn't realize it, uh, they were invading my home. And I didn't like it. 
but I didn't have words for all that at, the, at that time. Um, luckily, a guy by the name of Marty Robinson came up to me. I had met Marty a couple weeks before when I tried to go into a place called the Mattachine Society, which was a gay organization that existed at that point. Um, and they wouldn't let me stay because I was 18, and they were afraid uh, that they would be busted for the, uh, disrupting the morals of a minor. Uh, up to that point in Stonewall, gay organizations were very limited to what they would allow. Um, Marty was there when that happened and said, you know, we're going to form a new organization. And he said, it's going to be called the Action Group. Um, well, eventually there became four of us. Um, two of us are still alive today. And so, to my knowledge, uh, according to Michael uh, Levery, who's the other person alive today, he said we had two meetings. I don't remember them. Um, uh, but the one thing that we did, which was very important, is... Later on, Marty came up to me that night, gave me a piece of chalk, and said, right on the walls of, of Christopher Street and the street itself, tomorrow night, uh, Stonewall. And we did that. And um, You went up and down Christopher yeah. Street. So and where we could, we wrote, wrote on the walls or on a street. While you were doing that, at that point, was the event or the, the Oh, it went on for hours, yeah. Was it over, though, when you were doing it? Or was it no, still, no so you, it was still going. It was still going. And so, it was, I mean, it was going in various shapes through the night. So the reason for the writing and the chalk was that you were already planning, although, well, you may have Correct. That, Absolutely. that this was not going to go away to, with this one particular. Exactly. Um, and that Marty thought of that uh, and enlisted Martha Shelley, um, and they were two of the speakers, directly on the steps of the center door of the Stonewall the following night. The piece of chalk, the writing on the sidewalk, the writing on the walls, uh, to come back to Stonewall the next night. Then from that was born this gay liberation this front, this movement, and without that, then Stonewall would not probably have its place in history. And now it's not to say it wouldn't have happened somewhere else down the road, you know, maybe again at Stonewall or somewhere, but that's really the contribution of Stonewall separate from all the other ones that happened across the country. Right, but I, I want to give credit where credit's due. I did the grunt work, but the idea of that, Marty Robinson, who really does, he's no longer with us, and he doesn't, uh, he was a very controversial figure in, in the gay lesbian community until he died of AIDS. Um, and he doesn't get the credit for that. Yeah, you refer to him as an unsung hero of the... He year. is. He is. All right, so let's talk about the um, Gay Liberation Front. They're described as the most dysfunctional LGBT organization with so much yelling and disagreement. Pause. But it worked. True? Magic. It was sheer magic. And I... You would go into the meetings and there was no Robert's Rules of Order, no permanent chair, um, no structure whatsoever. A uh, stick would be thrown up in the air. Whoever caught it was the chair that night. You could not vote on something because everything had to agree, be agreed upon by consensus. Uh, it was and, and on top of all that, we were trying to find our own identity. So every single night, it seemed, we would be discussing sexism and masculinity and femininity and should men be... Uh, it was a madhouse. Uh, but it was a joyful madhouse. Uh, taught me more than I could ever learn in any university with any degree. Um, and the magic was that even with all that dysfunctionality and craziness going on, um, we had more 
success in one year than this movement has had in the uh, succeeding 49 yeah, do a years. a couple of box check also. I mean, what, what are the things that are credited to the, to the organization? Yeah. Uh, we created the first gay youth organization that ever existed in this country, which at one point had 20 chapters around the country. Uh, that's larger than anything that had ever existed before. We created the first trans organization, which was called Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. Um, and everybody knows the two names that are affiliated with that, which is... Um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. Um, we uh, created a medical organization so that we could give out medical alerts on the street, leafleting every night. We did the same thing with legal. Michael Lavery was in charge of that. We would do um, leafleting of uh, legal issues. Uh, when we had problems with the police, we would be leaf leafleting about the police, and we'd hand it to the police. Um, the, the, uh, in July, we held our first demonstration, one month after Stonewall, our first public demonstration where we protested Village Voice, then walked down to the 10th Police District and said, it's our street. You're done. No one had ever done anything like that before. We, were, we, we made the point clear that, we, you know, come out, come out. We're out of the closet. Um, uh, we're loud, uh, loud, proud, and out. Um, and we're going to be in your face. Uh, invisibility is ending, and it's ending now. If all of that were not enough, uh, we created the first gay community center. Then at the end of that first year, we joined with Craig Robwell uh, to create Christopher Street Liberation Day March, which was the first gay pride. Nothing like that's ever been done in the year since in this gay, uh, gay rights struggle. It's a hell of a legacy. Yeah, it is. And I'm proud of every one of my brothers and sisters, no matter how disagreeable they are, and they still are. <laughs> Most dysfunctional organization with so much yelling and disagreement. <laughs> the media ignored covering that yep. particular night. Uh, and when they did get around to doing something about it, the Daily News headline read, Homo Nest Raided, Queen Bees Are Stinging Mad. So... It was offensive, you yeah, know, and it was like treated like Garland? a yeah. treated like, but in a very cartoonish fashion, you would say. That's why I say it's disrespectful. The Judy Garland thing is disrespectful. We're not showbiz. We were angry. We were fighting 2,000 years of oppression. Media coverage is a blessing and a curse, I suppose, in that sense. Yes. You could not have accomplished everything without them, uh, but at the same time... There's, they perpetuate certain uh, stereotypes and myths and, and things that just... But you can true. use them. Uh, yes, you can. And what, but for you, in what way? Uh, what would be? Uh, well, the one thing that Jeff really taught me um, was that if we're going to be serious in changing the world, and we did, um, the only way you do that is by changing people's opinions. And people's opinions of LGBT people was so low because they believe every single myth of every single group. Uh, for religious people, we were immoral. Uh, for uh, law enforcement, we were criminal. To the medical profession, uh, we were mentally ill. Uh, they believed all of that, and they believed uh, we should be, have electric shock or manic drug treatments um, or be locked up in prisons. Um, we were uh, people who were child molesters, um, and that's all we were. We weren't deserving of jobs. So I always believed, and what I learned to believe was that the way to change that was to have the world see us as flesh and blood. And the only way you could do that is to be in front of them. And I decided at some point along here that that's what I was going to do, is get myself and our community in front of that big camera. And if they weren't going to show us, we were going to make them show us. Do you f want 
do you think you need as a community? Um, I mean, I guess you could just talk about, well, that's the way it was back then, and no. But would you want the NYPD to apologize for the way it handled the gay community back then? Yes, if the Pope can apologize to Jews for what they did in World War II, I think the New York Police Department could apologize. Many people think the gay rights movement is over. You have marriage equality, <laughs> we're done. Then why can I go to the Poconos and be refused a room? Simply because I've got married. Of course it's not over, that's silly. Many of us live in big cities and we're in bubbles. And we don't see what's going on around the rest of the country. Um, believe me, it's not good. And we are, you know, as part of our Pride coverage, we're um, going to be talking to the Anti-Violence Project. Excellent. And, um, you know, we were talking about Matthew Shepard and how important he was. And, and some of the folks in the room said, well, to a generation, there's no connection to Matthew Shepard. They don't know who he is. And that time is sort of, you know, come and gone. But we were just doing a story the other day of, uh, I think, a nine-year-old in Huntsville, uh, Alabama, who was bullied because he was gay and he took his own life. So 50 there years are later... many, many. I think one of... Uh, you've touched on an area where um, our community seems to be blind or it wants to be blind. We're so uh, full of all the success we've had, we're not looking at our past. And if we don't look at our past, you're going to repeat it. Um, and our past that they haven't really concentrated on at all is what happened to us, how we were treated. Um, and, and that upsets me a great deal. So you talked about one boy, and then you talked about Matthew Shepard. Um, I can literally tell you thousands of them. I, mean, I think we have to start talking about those things. I think we have to tell people where we were so they know what it took to get here. Before I let you go, I just want to end on the coming out part. Uh, knowing what you know, connecting the dots, if you had a message for young people who have yet to come out, who aren't sure whether they come out to their parents, is there, is there a life lesson to pass on to them that they can... Yeah, I, I think there is. Um, first off, every individual is different due to the circumstances of their family, where they work, um, and who their friends are. So they have to do it when they're comfortable doing it. What I can tell them is that after they do it, it might be a few bumpy road al along the way, um, but I can tell you you'll be a much happier person because you won't be deceiving anybody, uh, and you'll be, be able to find your true love, and that true love won't be deceiving anyone either. Williams Institute has done surveys and discovered that over half of LGBT youth today wish to get married and have children. Um, it's a figure I never thought I would hear. Um, and the fact is that half of young LGBT youth realize they could get married and have a family. Something that wasn't offered to me when I was younger. Greatest single fear for not coming out is fear of rejection? Fear of rejection from your parents primarily, yes. That's the number one reason. Mark Siegel, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Been nice being with you. Relive the history, hear the stories, and be inspired. From Stonewall to marriage equality, 50 years of pride at 1010wins.com slash pride. I'm Ben Meverack.